Hi, everyone. Jim Mitchell. I'd like to welcome you back to another edition of Chicago's Legal Latte. Uh, we're going to continue conversations, as we always do, about matters of legal importance. And uh, today, joining me is uh, Jennifer T. from Lavelle Law, one of the shareholders there. We've talked to Jennifer many times in the past on our podcasts, and I'm uh, going to dive into a topic today that um, I think many businesses in particular will be interested in, but individuals as well. So first of all, Jennifer, great to see you again. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. So our topic is accord and satisfaction. It sounds like a technical legal term, um, but it really applies to a lot of very common instances. So first of all, let's go high level. Tell me a little bit about what that term means. Well, it's a method that parties can use, and it's based on contract law, and okay. it's the ability to potentially discharge a debt or a claim that is disputed between the parties. So it, it could settle that debt or claim disputed between the two parties by way of a check or another instrument that contains language saying that this is full payment or this is full satisfaction of whatever that dispute is between you and the other party. The law considers that kind of like a contractual claim because the check is like an offer. And then if you deposit the check, that deposit is like an acceptance of the offer. So uh, you mentioned uh, checks doing business. So is this normally something that would involve like a contractor or a vendor in a, in a business situation? Yes, it's very common in that scenario. Okay. Now you, you mentioned this, uh, you know, in terms of the, the legal approach to a legal position. Is this a, uh, an Illinois statute then that covers uh, accord and satisfaction? Yes, it's its own statute. It's 810-ILCS-5-3-311, and that is called Accord and Satisfaction. So it's codified here in Illinois. All right. So I want to talk to you today about some of the instances in which this may occur and, and how the process plays out. But if I heard you correctly, does it the first indicator need to be that there is some dispute over a payment? Yes, a dispute over a payment and then a good faith uh, assertion of what that claim is, you know, and then uh, the other party indicating here's the payment for whatever that dispute is. And I believe in good faith that this represents the payment that is due. In preparing for this, uh, you had shared some notes and you, you indicated or used a term called unliquidated claim, which I think many of your peers would understand as you deal with this. What, what, what does that mean? How does it factor in? All it means is that a debt could exist or may exist, but the exact amount, uh, exact amount of the debt isn't known. Okay. So um, when we talk about a disputed claim, so let's just put a kind of a use case around it. Someone hires a contractor for some work. The work gets completed. There's a bill issued. The, at that point, someone says, well, look, I don't think that's the right amount, or maybe they don't pay on time. It's, are those the circumstances out of which this would arise? Yeah, it could be also common when, let's say, the, um, the, the contractor didn't do all the work and okay. there is one line item in the proposal that was signed and that work was not performed. Then upon receipt of the invoice, the customer would send their, the payment that they believe is due, noting that a portion of it wasn't actually performed. So the payment wouldn't be tendered on that. Okay. Um, as we talk in the past and, and with your peers and colleagues, Jennifer, I know that... Uh, you know, in many of these instances, there, for a statute to be enforced, there needs to be certain circumstances. And this happens, this happens, these things need to be present. Are there any factors associated with accord and satisfaction that we should be aware of here? 
Right. So the con- the the statute has three elements is what they call it uh, in order to satisfy this type of claim. And it's that a person in good faith tendered an instrument to another party saying it was in full satisfaction of a claim. Number two would be the amount of the claim was unliquidated, which we just discussed, or mm-hmm. subject to a bona fide dispute between the parties. And number three is that the person actually received the instrument and then deposited it. Okay. And, and um, again, as you know, I like to do taking notes here, I want to follow up on some things. But first of all, the statute that you referenced, um, I know includes language that states the person against who the claim is asserted proves the instrument or accompanying written communication contained a conspicuous statement to the effect that the instrument was tendered for satisfaction. Um, is that a long way of saying someone just writes paid in full? Um, is that uh, the same thing? Yes, but it has to be conspicuous. And what does conspicuous mean? Easy yeah. to see. It can't be tiny print. You got to put it, you know, most people will put it in the memo section, paid mm-hmm. in full, not hiding it because it, what you're, what you don't want to, a contract wouldn't be formed if you sent an offer and the person didn't even know you sent an offer and, and, and inadvertently accepted it. The person should see that that's your offer and that you accepted it. So that conspicuous statement would be on the check. You could also do it in, um, a, 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 you should put it on both documents. If you're going to send a cover letter, mm-hmm. I'd put it in the cover letter, I'd put it in the check. If you're just sending the check, it will set, be satisfied so long as you put it on the check and in the memo in a way that is easy, easy to see. Okay. Uh, we're talking with uh, Jennifer Key today, a shareholder at Lavelle Law. You can always get more information at labellelaw.com and information about Jennifer there, the articles she has uh, written in the past, podcasts she's joined us for, uh, a great resource for a lot of your legal questions, labellelaw.com. And we'll have Jennifer share a phone number before we're done here today. Uh, but we want to continue the conversation uh, with accord and satisfaction as our topic. Um, you mentioned that you know you can write a letter, you can include it on the check. Um, so do you I want to look at it from both sides of the party. So if you send me an invoice for $5,000, I call and say, Hey, I don't think that's right, but I don't, you know, I want to at least pay you for what I think is right. So I just send you a check for 4,000. I don't write paid in full on it. You take that, you deposit that. I think, you know, that was good enough. That's what I'm going to pay you. I, I assume that that isn't satisfactory, that that's still from your perspective means I owe you a thousand dollars. Correct. Cause you didn't put paid in full. If okay. you put people and then it was deposited, then you could argue that that's the agreement. Okay. So from your perspective now, you, the contractor, the vendor, I write paid in full on an instrument. I send it to you. You don't agree. Can you cash that and say, well, I'll take what I've got now and I'll go back and argue for less. Or once you cash it, you're you, that's it. You've agreed. I think that this why this is such an important topic because uh-huh. if you cash it and it says paid in full, you'll be deemed to have accepted that offer. That's the amount due. You can't later say I'm also due a thousand. So in order to reject that offer, you have to reject the check. So you send back the check or if you deposited it, let's say you have a lockbox or something Mm -hmm. like that. If you deposited it and then discovered that it said paid in full on the check within the 90 90 days thereafter, you'd retender the amount back to the opposing side within the 90 days. And that would cover an inadvertent depositing of the check without you seeing it. But you can't just deposit the check and, and, and 
wait six months and say, oh, you owe me another thousand. They'd have the argument and be on the winning side of the law of not having to pay the extra thousand dollars because you cashed that check with the statement on it, saw the statement and deposited it. Now, this might take us down a path and you can say, look, that's a whole nother topic. But I know so many transactions today are done online. The businesses have online services that handle their payments of bill.com or something else. Um, is that part of the discussion? I mean, is there a way for someone to write paid in full in, in that? Or if they make a payment online and don't say that, do we fall in the same scenario? See, you know, and I don't know if when you make a payment online, if there's an ability to put paid in paid full in. where mm-hmm. it can be seen, you know, I, I think I think it, there's definitely an argument for it. But I do think mostly this relates to checks. Checks. They call it instruments, mm-hmm. uh, a check or some other type of payment method. Um, it could be activity. On, I, I think it could fall underneath there, but it would have to fall within what we're talking about. It have to be conspicuous. Okay. have to be able to see that language on there. Okay. Um, and is there any potential dispute over what's conspicuous? I assume the court has some standards. So I, as you said, uh, you know, I, I could write something on a check. Maybe my handwriting is terrible. Maybe I put it in a note that, you know, is not on the check. Um, how much does the law allow for leeway there in terms of who determines what's conspicuous? Again, I'd put it on the check. I'd make it big enough and I'd make it legible. They have okay. to be able to see what you're actually indicating. Um, you know, I think that would be a fact basis that the court would look at. If depending on how small the writing is, depending on how difficult it was to read, you know, that right. could potentially cause an issue, even if it was big, but it was illegible. Then they, again, you're not getting that offer and acceptance, which is the basis behind the statute. Okay. And in terms of working with the statute, Jennifer, in, in the work you do, litigation and such, it, is this something you see periodically and is it usually end up having to go through a court process or does it get resolved? I mean, what, what's the likelihood of this becoming a, a significant issue that requires a lot of legal attention? So I've seen it two or three times, one of which ended up in a lawsuit for two years. Okay. And you know, I thought I had a great case. We we make the argument and you know the other side brings in evidence claiming that they didn't receive, they didn't actually see it. They have a lockbox, they have a et cetera. So it could potentially, it could cut the lawsuit very short. Mm-hmm. So it could result in not having to pay attorney's fees for the next three years or two years. That's sometimes how long it takes to get to trial um, if you do this at the beginning. So it could be a substantial savings for you. Um, uh, so definitely you want to include that language on the check and make sure you know you have all of the, the conspicuous statement have met the, the uh, requirements of the statute. Uh, you, you shared with us some some background and the things that you know you definitely would recommend. But so many businesses, especially service businesses, probably take checks all day long from customers when they're in homes and such. So what what would you recommend? What are the steps a, a good business should take to make sure that they just don't ever find themselves in this scenario? I think whoever's depositing the check. I mean, obviously, anybody who receives the check should have this knowledge. You should let mm-hmm. them know if it says that on there to alert alert the company right away. But then you have to have like a check review process, which I think a lot of companies have. They'll have an accountant or whoever's handling their bookkeeping who's depositing the check. So I would train those people on this so that they can alert you in the event that you receive one of these checks. All right. Well, Jennifer, I know you have uh, been able to promote some of the seminars and things you've done to help people with various aspects of their business. And um, you've shared podcasts and articles with us. I know sometimes people want to just talk to you directly. So before we let you go, 
what's a good way for someone to reach out and talk to you about this or any of the other topics that might be involved in business litigation? Sure. I have the, the greatest uh, direct line number. <laughs> it's 312-888-4111. And that's my direct line. Get <laughs> that in use. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for being with us. Great to see you and talk to you again. Uh, certainly appreciate it. And again, LavelleLaw.com, a great place to go and get to more of this information. And Jennifer, we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. You too. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you now. Bye.